Well, good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. We're glad that you are with us, and I pray that our study together will be uh, beneficial to you. I think I understand it's compulsory to show you my socks, so I just wanted to do that. It's not quite probably what you're used to. I'm a little more conservative than my friend. Uh, man, he wears some wild stuff, and uh, kind of goes with his nature, right? But I, I've enjoyed that. We've kind of kidded about that through the years. Uh, in fact, I think he's in a sock club, too. I don't know if y'all know that or not. Sure good to be with you. Uh, I preached in this area uh, back in the early 90s, so I, I really had solid-colored hair back then and uh, enjoyed the group, uh, still do. We're, we've been friends with people at Eastland. We're staying with them, so we're going to stay a couple more days just so we can see people. Please be uh, praying for Lee Price. She's a member over there, just discovered that she has a brain tumor. And they go back to the days when I was back there. And uh, she has to have surgery Friday. So if you'll keep her in your prayers. I know that family and the congregation there, they're just wonderful people. Uh, we'll appreciate it. Uh, but it's good to be with you. Uh, I know Jason from a distance too. And, and uh, good to be with Roger and, and to be with these men that that do uh, God's work in different places, and I'm grateful for the invitation uh, to be with you. Uh, the last time I think I was in Indiana uh, it was uh, a few years ago, uh, and I'm talking about when I was in uh, at Eastland. I was at Clarksville, I think was a congregation. And it was this time of year, and uh, we went to eat with somebody. And as I got to the restaurant and got out, the guy didn't lock his door. And I said, uh, do, do you want me to lock the door? And he said, no, we just lock it during squash season. And I thought that was the funniest line I'd ever heard. If you're, if you're a gardener, you know people just put squash in your car and tomatoes. But anyway, good to be with you. Lord, lead me on to higher ground. What a great phrase in that song. That stanza, I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. But still I pray till heaven I found, Lord, lead me on to higher ground. You know, the concept of, of looking for going uh, to that that's higher up is something that I think catches all of us uh, in, our, in our minds and in our concept. Uh, if you listen to all the verses of the song, higher ground is used five times, counting towards the chorus, five times in that song. Uh, I'm pressing on the upward way. I'm gaining new heights every day, uh, a higher plane uh, than I have found. I want to scale the utmost heights, and even phrases like, I want to live above the world. It's obvious what the song's about, what it wants to capture uh, us to think about. Um, so if you think physically, uh, who is it that we remember in this world? I'm going to tell you, folks that scale some of the highest peaks in this world are people that generally are at least respected by people. We may not know their names, household names. There's one that I'll suggest to you that you'll know. But if people scale the highest peaks, for instance, in North America, Denali, or, or you think of even Mount Rainier. One time we visited, my wife and I, that great mountain. If you've ever been to Seattle, and if it's a clear day, if you can catch a clear day, how it just dominates the skyline. You cannot imagine how huge it is. But once you get up to it, to the visitor center, and you can go as far as the park ranger, I remember the snow was still on the ground. They still had the spikes in there so that the people at hike knew where to go. The park ranger that was leading us said, if someone tells you that they climbed Mount Rainier, 
you need to be very impressed with them. They have done something very significant. She told me several, about three people had died that year already trying to scale that, that, that peak. I mean, I think we're all impressed with people that, that climb. I mean, what about the granddaddy of them all to get onto Mount Everest, to be at the highest point on physical earth, to think about how difficult that is. Let me tell you what I do know. No one gets in the Guinness Book of World Records for how many beaches they visited. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody gets in the Guinness Book of world, world Records for how many valleys you've driven through. You get in the Guinness Book of World Records like Sir Edmund Hillary, who became the very first person that in recorded history that we would know ever has made it to the top of that great mountain. And all the ones that have since done it, because it is something. That is a feat uh, that, as my park ranger said to me, you need to be very uh, impressed with. Uh, I'm a mountain person. No offense to beach people. I, I know there are beach people that love beaches, and I'm, I'm happy for you and <laughs> thrilled that, that I, I get to a beach, and I look out, and the sand's gorgeous, and the waves are coming in, and I'm there about five minutes. I say, okay, that's, that's pretty. Now, now what? Let's go to the mountains. Let's go to where we can look up, where we can smell the fresh rain and the scent of the pine in the afternoon those rains that come, to get a glimpse of it. The first time I drive out of West Texas where I grew up, and you'd see the silhouette of that, you know, kind of purplish blue, sort of all of a sudden you see that rise in the distance. And the closer and closer you get, the foothills that you lead into the Rockies. And it's just amazing to me to be there. So how do we pull that then into what we're wanting to do spiritually tonight? Let's think about it. Why are we spiritually drawn to higher ground? We live in a world that I think all of us can understand is just an absolute mess right now. You think about how things have deteriorated. In the days that I grew up with, you know, watching Leave It to Beaver and Andy Griffith and stuff like that on TV, to having all kinds of people question whether they are a male or female and not knowing whether they are or they aren't. And uh, to people saying from the top echelons down from the Supreme Court that homosexual marriage. Mind you that people recognize homosexuality uh, as, as a part of their culture, like the Romans and the Greeks. They never elevated it to the standard of marriage. There is no culture that has ever done that until us. And then you stop and think about all the other things. If you're a school teacher, you know, bless you if you can last and think about being in the front lines of watching what's happening in our society. Because y'all are in the trenches. You see what's going on. Uh, my wife was a school teacher for many years, and just from the standpoint of the home disintegrating, my life was affected because she'd have to have a, a different meeting with a, the dad of the family than the mom because they couldn't get along. And it affected me. The messes of our world, I think we're all aware of. And even as I think about my own mess, as I think about my sin, as I think about what I've done, I think about a world that is indeed fouled up. Why is that? I mean, why are we led to higher ground? I, because I think we all know we, if we would just stop for a minute and think about it, we don't know the way. Jeremiah has that classic statement in his uh, book, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in Man who walks to direct his steps. It, it hasn't been successful since the beginning of time 
of people being able to know how to get out of the mess of sin and, and make our lives be that that is on a higher plane, that that seeks a, 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 a touch of the gleam of glory. All the isms, all the world religions, all the philosophies you can think about hit a dead end at sin and how to bring us out of that. In 1898, there was a world conference of religions that occurred in Chicago and uh, every religion you can imagine was there. The major ones were, were represented uh, Islam and Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, all, Taoism, all the ones that you could, could think you could name. But everyone was invited. And there was an episode where a man representing, and I don't remember uh, who he was, but representing Jesus, representing Christianity, had a woman that had, had come with sin in her life. And in a conversation that he had with that, that particular group of people, he said to them, listen, do you hear it? He said, there's no response to this woman who has confessed her sin. It comes from any of the major world religions, how to get yourself out of it, besides what Jesus Christ has brought to us. And then he taught the most fundamental kinds of things that we know the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. The only way that can show us to truth in life is the way, is Jesus. The professor that was visiting a terminally ill student in the hospital of a, of a quote-unquote Christian college had come there to see him in his last days. Uh, the tragedy, he described, that had faced him in his early life, a young man said, that's not tragic, what has happened to me. Tragic would be to be 55 years old and to think life consisted only of drinking booze, popping pills, chasing women, and making more money. Now that would be tragic. Enter by the narrow gate, but the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So because we don't know the way doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to look for that. I'm going to have to take another step, and that is I have to be broken enough to seek help. I have to know that someone has to lead me out of the mess that I have made of my life. Why is it that men, and I am in that group, will drive for an hour lost rather than stop and ask someone for directions? Thank goodness somebody invented GPS. GPS this afternoon led me back to the people I'm staying with. It led me back on a torturous route. It got me there, obviously, but we went through a cow pasture and some other places, but it got me to where I was going. So I'm grateful for GPS, but what is it about us that we won't stop and ask for directions? We have to be broken enough. You have to be humble enough. You have to accept the humiliation of it. Eat the crow that needs to be you know, eaten to ask somebody to help us. Because, folks, what is sense is it to keep hitting dead ends or driving off the cliff? The very first beatitude of kingdom people is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that word poor there, they had about nine different words for poor in the Greek language. That one is the, what we would say the lowest, the deepest, the hardest. It means abject, utter poverty. To think about 
those pictures sometimes you see in Africa where it's a little baby with a swollen stomach and the flies are all around the you know, corners of their eyes and they're, they're trying to appeal to you to give your money so that you would, these people wouldn't starve to death. That's the poverty that the word that's used there in that beatitude is describing. But it's saying it's spirit. We have to be that broken in our spirits. We say sometimes about somebody that has is, is made a mess of their lives, we'll say they haven't hit rock bottom yet. We say that, don't we? Because we, we, we say things like, once they hit rock bottom, then the only place to look is what? Up. The only place to look is, is to higher ground, it is to know that we need help to get out of the mess that we have made of our lives. Do you remember the story of Jehoshaphat, a good king in Judah that led his whole nation out of Judah, of Jerusalem at least, led them out, and they were watching Edom and Moab and another country right now, my old age is escaping my mind, but there were three of them that were coming against them. And, and Jehoshaphat started praying to God that, that God would help them because they knew they were in such a mess that they would not get out of this. And, and this has been one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. We do not know what to do. But our eyes up are on you. So that leads me then to, to the second question that follows this, and that would be, who can lead us to higher ground? Listen, we need to know the right person. We need to know the one who has all power, who has the right to rule in our lives, who knows how we are made, what we are to do and to be. But if I think about it from the standpoint a minute ago, we're talking about climbing a, a mountain like Mount Everest. It's not a what that's going to lead you there. I know now that there probably are maps and things that come out of GPS and, and so forth that can help those people who are climbing it. But listen, no philosophy in Sir Edmund Hillary's day except that tenaciousness that one would have in determination. There wasn't a book. There's not a what. I know he can learn things from those places. It was a who. Sir Edmund Hillary climbed to the top of the highest peak in the world on the 29th of May 1953, because there was a Sherpa mountaineer right along with him named Tenza Norgay. Why, did, why is every trip that's taken for somebody to attempt to climb that great peak, always it is Sherpa, always it is the native people of that area who know that mountain, who know the way that you have to go up it, uh, who, who are going to be a part if you're going to have a success to do that. Daniel Boone led the settlers into this part of the world across the Gumbler Pass. It wasn't our gap. It wasn't a what. It wasn't a book. It was a who. The guide that we need has to be all-powerful. A guide that made us, that knows where we came from knows the purpose we're supposed to have while we are here. And he knows where we're going. He knows what is awaiting us at the end of it all. And there is no authority greater than his. And he is the creator. And therefore, his creation screams at us to listen, 
In Psalms 19, verse 1 and 2, you know these passages. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge that the stars sing their voices. In Isaiah 43, in verse 7, when he speaks to Judah, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Now I think about Paul's statement in Romans, the ninth chapter, in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? I need the one to lead me out of the mess of sin of my own life and what you need and this world needs is the God that created us. I'm a beekeeper. Uh, done it since I was 17 years old. First bees I ever ordered were out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Back in that day, they were paper catalogs, and they had a farm and ranch catalog. First, first ever time, nobody in my family knew anything about bees. First time I find anything out about them is I, I discover there's a section. You can order bees out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. I had a little Sears store in the town. Do you ever live in a town where it wasn't a major Sears store back in the day, just a little bitty shop? My first bees I ordered came into that shop. She called me on the phone. I can still hear her panic in her voice. She said, Mr. Durham, your bees are here. Come get them, please. This is a, a picture of a, a brood. Uh, if you would pull out a frame, it's, a, it's really a pretty picture of it. Uh, the top part has the, is, is there a, is this? Nope, I thought it might have a, a laser on it. Top part's honey, but this part that you see that's big, that's cat, a few bees are still on it. That's brood all underneath there. But what fascinates me, and there's a lot of things about it that, that again, as I said to you, scream that there is a creator, a designer, is that this is the shape of those cells. They're all hexagons. Now, hexagons and squares and triangles are the only shape that they, they can call tessellating, that is, tiling. They can fill a plane where all the sides of every one of them touch one another, and they, feel, they fill up the plane. But a hexagon is unique in that it allows something to happen that none of the other shapes can happen, and that is it gives you the most holes that's on a plane. Not as many triangles, not as many squares. That are the size that a bee needs to raise its brood. But a hexagon also does something else. One side of each hexagon, if you look at that middle picture, one side of the hexagon is the side of the one next to it. Same all the way around. So that you can maximize, you use the least amount of material to build the strongest structure possible to give you the most number of holes available on a plane when a bee hive is needing to build up its numbers from winter where it's like maybe 25,000 bees to now we need 40, 60, 70, 80, depends on how big the hive can get, to bring in honey to bring in massive amounts of honey that feeds us. That's why, why I got interested in them. <laughs> but I open a hive and I look at that and I think, so what bee committee got together and decided, so what shape will we make our, our hive? Circles? If I put a circle above this one, I lose that funny little triangle space. Wasted. It doesn't matter what species of honeybee there is. It doesn't matter if I have a pre-stamped frame like that that they draw out and it has to be the size of theirs. If they build it in a tree or they build it in a rock or a crevice somewhere in a, in a limb, 
out in the wild, they're going to build hexagons. It's, it, it's in their brain. <laughs> Who made that song? That does from a design factor that the music industry uses the hexagon shape, and NASA and all the space industry understands that too. They use that same shape because of the strength of it, because it has other properties. I'm going to tell you, a creator is amazingly all-powerful and understanding of what we need. There's no such thing in this life as absolute freedom. I need to know that I need a God, not only that knows who I am, that is that I am a sinner and that he has the power to deliver me from that, but I need that God to love me also, because he could be a God that's powerful enough to do the things we just showed, and many more like that, but has no interest in us. We need a guide that is going to love us and redeem us from the bondage of sin and death that we have made. He knows that we are lost. He knows that we do not know the way. And he came to earth, as he says in his own words in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, those that are lost. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Turn with me, if you will, to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2 and look with me at a passage that is one of those succinct statements of the gospel of Jesus. At verse 3 it says, uh, let's start back at verse 1, but you were dead in in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you listen to that passage, you see that he is saying in verse 3, we were doomed. You are children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. We are under his eternal judgment if we do not get out of this mess. We have been deceived by the master deceiver. You have followed the prince of the power of the air, verse 2. Just another way of saying Satan has spun his web and caught each one of us. And he says we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1. We are dead We are deceived, we are doomed, but those wonderful two little words, but God, but God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Not only a creator that has the power to deliver us, has the power to give us what we need, has to have one who loves us and would seek us and guide us and lead us, lead us on to higher ground. So the third question then that we need to ask, and we'll bring this then to the close of our lesson. 
What must we do so that Jesus may lead us to higher ground? Now, I realize there are a number of things maybe you could put here. Obviously, we could put the initial things that we have to do, that we have to bow our will to him. We're going to talk about that in a general way, and that will means that we have to believe in him, repent of our sins. We need to confess him, as the scripture says, and then we need to be baptized into Jesus Christ. But I'll suggest some things to you, and you probably can fill out a whole lot more of what Jesus would want us to do. But in a general type of way, the Bible's going to say to us, we must be holy as he is holy. Once we are led by him out of his love to get out of that mess initially, then we must make our lives holy as he is holy. We must do God's will. There are a number of psalms that speak to this. When I was getting ready for the lesson, I was just typing in, asking my computer to search for the words lead. How many times the scriptures in the psalms say to us something like this, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In Psalms 43 and verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now that great Psalm 119 verse 35, you would expect it to be in there, wouldn't you? Lead me in the path of your commandments. And there are many more than that. Lead me to higher ground. When God called Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verses 7 through 9, we won't take the time to read that, but you can look at it if you want to later. It is where Joshua is being given his commission to bring the people of Israel into the promised land. There's no discussion in that passage about battle plans. God doesn't talk to Joshua about stratagems, about strategies. Though Joshua would do a, a classic, you know, divide the middle, push into the middle, separate the north from the south, turn your attention to one side and wipe them out, so then the other side can't help them, and then turn your attention to them. And he uses classic military strategy in what he does. But God doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk to him about weaponry. He doesn't talk to him about horses. He doesn't talk to them about chariots. What God discusses with Joshua in that chapter is one essential thing. You obey the word that I have given to you by Moses. You follow the book of the commandments that I have laid down. Over and over again, the emphasis of that chapter is obey God's word. And what happened when Achan didn't? Just shortly after all of this, the disaster that befell them, and they're facing then the Canaanites who have now whooped them, and all of them could assemble and whoop. And Joshua is absolutely, as the rest of them, disturbed. And once they take care of that sin and God has made his point with them, then they go on to victory because the one essential thing is follow me, follow God. He's the leader. He knows what is best. Years ago, I was reading a, in the first Corinthians, sometimes how you read passages and all of a sudden there's a phrase that I've never, never really noticed before. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, I would have you write that down and just remember this. Paul says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. You know how essential it is to follow what God has said. 
there are young preachers like Jason and like Jordan and like others I can name you, many of them, that I have great respect for and that I, I believe will hold true, will do what needs to be done. My generation is passing away. I don't think Roger's coloring his hair. I think things are, are, are what they ought to be. I'm surely not. We're, we're, we're going on. We're passing, we'll be passing away. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of young preachers that encourage me, but folks, that's not everybody. That's not every young preacher. And, and there are things about what I'm seeing in, in my world, in my day. Am I becoming that old cantanker? <laughs> I hope not. But I hope that I'm sounding alarm just like Joshua did when Joshua assembled all of those people and said, you choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of the Amorites and the land in which you are going to dwell or the gods of your fathers and the, that were beyond the river. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That every generation has to decide, will I go beyond what is written? Or will I stay in its confines? And when older preachers tell or try to instruct and, and teach, for instance, what has had the, the label sinning, of command, example, and necessary inference. And then there are people that sort of just poo-poo the idea that, that that's just a man-made construct. You came up with that. There's older preachers in the Church of Christ. That, they did all of that. And don't realize that you just opened the book to Mark 12, and you know that story of Sadducees and Jesus, and, and necessary inference is written all over that chapter, that that's how Jesus makes his point that he tells the story of a burning bush and says, by just merely the words that were spoken there, undid the Sadducees' theory, but there was nothing spoken verbatim. It was all by what we call necessary inference. Or how we know that we use unleavened bread on the Lord's Supper, and you can just go down different trails and arguments that you want to make. But folks, what I'm just trying to say, and that can't be my lesson tonight, is just in a general way, young people, when older preachers are saying to you to carefully follow what is written, and these aren't man-made constructs, this is the way anything teaches. A textbook, a, a newspaper, whatever we're reading. Listen to them and pay attention because the future matters. Do God's will. Secondly, I would say that another thing that we need to be careful to do is to walk with God even when it gets very tough and when it's very hard to do so. The Apostle Paul writes this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You like that phrase in there, I, I like is not the right word, or are you perplexed by the phrase perplexed? Perplexed, but not driven to despair. You ever been perplexed by God? You ever wondered what God is up to in your life and the life of other people that you know? Why, did, why didn't God heal my son or my daughter, my spouse? Why me? Where were you when I lost my job and I was 55 years old? And, and, and where do you go in an industry like I'm in and get another and, and, and finish out life so that I could reach retirement? Why did you allow a famine to kill so many tiny children 
in Africa, and I could go on and on and on. But at the end of the day, it's going to fit exactly what the Apostle Paul said here. We were perplexed, but not driven to despair. We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's, that's like the, the imagery is a, a, of olives being pressed under the weight of that rock that's on it, and the oil would, would flow out. We, we, are, we are crushed. I mean, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed under the pressure. We're, we're, not, we're persecuted, but that would might look like that if I'm persecuted and Rome is the, the power and authority, then I'm in the wrong. I mean, that's what I'd think of if they arrest a person. They arrest a person, that guy's got to be wrong. And if I'm arrested because I serve Jesus Christ by the Roman authorities, persecuted could look like I'm forsaken, struck down by the sword, but not destroyed because that's not the end of it. Was that a powerful passage about walking with God no matter how bad it gets? And no matter whether you understand it, or I understand it, or not. The scriptures over and over again admonish us to trust God no matter what. Paul, when he asked God to deliver that thorn in the flesh from him, and he asked him three times, the answer came, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, then I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Whether it's persecutions, he goes on to say, he just, whatever that thorn in the flesh is, he just elaborates on it. He just gives all these other reasons. I'm not, I'll not look at them as weaknesses anymore. I'll look at them as a means by which God shows his grace and power in my life, instead of turning me from God, the perplexity that I have about Him will turn me all the more to Him. And I will not let go of Him. And so when I read a passage like Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think of what He said to the nation as Moses handed the leadership mantle to Joshua. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. A passage that I read with my family many times when we have faced ordeals in life. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, I read this or quote it. Cast all your care upon him for what? For he cares for you. I may not understand why. That's not my place here to know. What I need to know is the who. I need to have absolute and total confidence in the who. And if I trust him, and cast all my care upon him. And he will care for me as he has promised. And sometimes, folks, in life, you just have to put your head down and plow through it. And a lot of the life of a Christian is going to be that way. You're just going to, what does the scripture say? Endure. Endure through Jesus. We consider those who endured to be blessed you have heard about Job's endurance and have seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Winston Churchill's famous speech that everybody probably knows, if you don't know any other speech about him, it was the one that he gave at Eton when he came back. They have five. He came back to Eton and said, never, never, never give up. The last point is that we must fight all or any doctrine 
are all, if they are people, that oppose the leadership of Jesus Christ. Jesus warned so many times. Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will appear and deceive many. I know that when I'm gone, savage wolves, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, will come in among you and not spare the flock. Indeed, some of your own men will arise and distort the truth in order to lure the disciples into following them. You will be blessed by pers- for persecution, but Jesus says, you will be blessed for being persecuted for my sake. We live in a day and age that I'm afraid, as I look for those who are younger, that there may be those things that you will have to face, that I and my generation might die in peace. But you may have to face a battle like those that were fought by Paul and so many other of the early Christians, where they literally suffered the loss of life and limb, the loss of their, their ability to make money and support their families. Maybe, maybe we will be spared, but if history is any lesson, it seems what is on the outskirts of what we can see will close in. And you will, you will have to stand in ways that I never had to be tested. But you may certainly be tested. Hold on to Jesus Christ who leads you. An explorer engaged a Bedouin guide to take him across the desert. When the two men arrived at the civilization's edge and the lone and barren sands stretched out as far as the eye could see, the the explorer saw nothing but trackless sand. There was no footprint. There was no path. There were no markers of any kind, and certainly there was no road. Turning to the guide, he asked with much concern in his voice, how are we going to find our way across this trackless, barren desert that has no road? And without looking away from the desert sands, the Bedouin simply replied, I am the road. If we know the who, And we have all confidence in him. And he has presented us with all the evidence to trust him, as he certainly has in the scriptures. Then we know who to follow. Follow him. The simple words he spoke to the most early disciples. Follow me. Follow him. Thank you for your attention.